We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2 if you want to find your way there already. But let's go ahead and start by praying for our morning. Lord, as we enter this, what we call our equip hour, but it's just a study of your word. Lord, we realize the humbling spot that is, uh, but also the praiseworthy spot that is. Uh, Lord, it's humbling because we are coming before you, the God of the universe, our Savior, the author of these words that we're about to study. And uh, Lord, the, the author of the gospel that we're focused on, uh, the gospel of, uh, Lord, salvation by your grace alone, through faith in your son, Jesus Christ alone. And uh, Lord, we, we praise you for that. We praise you that we're able to sit for a few minutes this morning and study your word and apply it to our hearts because none of that would be possible without the saving work you've done in our lives. Well, we're thankful and we praise you for giving us your word that we can know you, that we can know you well, that we can have that high view of you, Lord. We can have the high view of your word and let it rule over our lives that we could submit to it. We pray that that's what you would help us to do this morning is to submit to it, to be encouraged by it, Lord, as we study. Lord, we thankful. We, we pray also for the broad part of our, our, our worship this morning, Lord, for this hour, for the next, uh, for the kids that are in their Sunday school classes. Lord, we pray that you are glorified, that you are put on high, that you are worshipped well this morning. We ask your help for that. Lord, we pray for Pastor Burris as he comes and brings the word this morning. And we pray for this time in your word this morning that your word will bring true. And uh, Lord, that you'd be pleased. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. You, you may remember the account from Matthew chapter 13 labeled in your Bibles as the wheat and the tares. And it applies completely to our lesson this morning. I'll read it. It's Matthew chapter 13, 24 to 30. I want you to be listening for why that would be important with the Judaizers coming into Galatia and spreading a false gospel. We'll see the connection points, I hope. Matthew 13, 24 is the intro here. It says, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. As we look at our passage this morning, we need to know that whatever the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in its true form is proclaimed and people are growing and lives are being saved, the enemy is not far, the enemy is right there and we're in the midst of this letter to the Galatians and Paul is combating this enemy. This enemy is a false gospel. This enemy is someone who's trying to hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're going to see uh, how Paul addresses that this morning in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. The overview that we're going to see and you have on your outline is there are three affirmations to the true gospel that we're going to see. And Paul's doing this for the benefit of the Galatians, that they would be affirmed that they have the right gospel. The first affirmation that we're going to see is a confirmation that Paul has the exact same gospel as Jerusalem church. The second affirmation is that threats will come and must not be yielded to. And the third is that Paul and the Jerusalem church are in complete unity across all fronts. 
So here's our passage, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I'll read it for us this morning. It says, Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted them to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. At the top of your outline, you'll see the theme that we have running through this passage. The theme of, of Galatians is justification by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. And the theme of our passage today is the gospel of Jesus Christ must be vigilantly applied and defended at all times from within and from without. And I think on your sheet I added it's the affirmation of that gospel is what must be defended and applied. So as we review and get our minds back, where have we been in Galatians? We have to go back a little bit of a step and make sure we have the proper groundwork for our study this morning. So remember the main purpose of Paul's letter to the Galatians. What is, to your memory, the main purpose of Paul writing this letter to the Galatians? To rebuke the Judaizers, right? Because they came in, exactly right, they came in bringing a false gospel. In chapter 1, if you look at chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, you'll see what they were doing. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some, of, some who are disturbing you and want to do what? They want to distort the gospel of Christ. They're trying to change it. Specifically, they were fearing the party of the circumcision and trying to add circumcision and the law of Moses to salvation. They were adding works to salvation is what they were doing. And Paul's one of his main purposes is to rebuke them and to clear that up. There is no distortion. The gospel you receive from me is firm and true and doesn't need to be changed. Another aspect that he's trying to do is to recenter the Galatians onto the right gospel, the true gospel, and how it impacts their lives. We look at this almost every Sunday, but it's Galatians 5, chapter 1. And it's important that we look at it repeatedly because this is Paul's purpose for them. It says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. They were saved out of a law system that you can't earn your salvation through. It only shows you the path of sin that you need a savior and people were trying to bring them back into that and enslave them once again. So let's also look where in the flow of thought in this letter. It's really encouraging to see Paul's attitude as he goes through this. 
Paul's attitude in chapter one, he comes out strong. He comes out swinging. He's not saying, hey, it's great to be with you. you He's not, no niceties are there. He comes out loving, firm, forthright, energized parent, warning his children, get out of the road. I remember when Wade said that. That made a lot of sense to me. Think about that image. Your kid is doing something you know is imminently dangerous. You're going to do a lot with a lot of energy to bring him out of that. And that's the same attitude that Paul has as what he's going through here. In, verse, in verse chapter, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we see what he says. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Twice he says the cost or the outcome of someone bringing a false gospel is there to be a curse. This is strong language. Paul is emphatic that, we, that they need to catch this, that it's serious. And then in verses 11 and 12, you see he defended his gospel. And where did he receive his gospel? If you look at verses 11 and 12, he received it from someone very important to you. It's the Sunday school answer. Jesus. He received it from Jesus Christ himself directly through revelation. No man taught him this. He didn't study under someone else. He didn't pick it up from someone else. Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus revealed the gospel to Paul. It was not according to man as we see in verse 11. Verse 12 picks up, says, For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This gospel that Paul is defending so ardently came directly from our Savior. We must continue to defend it as well. And then in verses 15 and 16, we see that he defended his apostleship. Craig took us through this last Sunday and his mission to the Gentiles. Verse 15 says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might do what? Preach him among the Gentiles. His apostleship came directly from Jesus Christ. His mission came directly from Jesus Christ. His gospel and authority of his message came directly from Jesus Christ. It's undisputable. But here we are in a situation where people have come from Jerusalem, made their way up through into Galatia, and they're distorting the truth, or at least trying to. And so this, where we are in our letter now, is we're going to see Paul recount an event in his lives where essentially he says, I've been here before, I've dealt with these people before, and I want to help you affirm the truth of the gospel by how I dealt with that and the results of it. Which brings us to our first affirmation, which is the confirmation of the gospel with the Jerusalem church. This is chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. It says, Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. In verse 1, we see that this is after an interval of 14 years. So it, for the logical people or the people that are detail-oriented, here you go, okay, 14 years from what? How does this all work? It's 14 years. If you go back to his date of conversion, which is 34 AD, recorded in church history. And then we learned last week that he spent three years in Arabia. and came back to Damascus and then went through Cilicia and Syria. So that gets us to 36, 37 AD, and you add 14 to that, you end up around 50 AD. That's how we know with confidence that this is the Jerusalem council that he's referring to. That happened in 50 AD. He went up again to Jerusalem as he was being sent out from the Antioch church to deal with these false Judaizers that were, he had even come there before they reached Galatia. All of that intervening time, he was preaching the gospel that he was given by Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, 
where there's irrefutable proof through all of those places, you read Acts 13, you read Acts 14, and you look at Syria itself, and you look at his partnership with Barnabas there, and you see that people are saved. It's irrefutable, life changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important that we take a pause here and look at the three men who were sent from the Antioch church to Jerusalem to defend the faith. It's Paul and Barnabas and Titus. We can learn a little bit about maybe how we should imitate these men as we look at their character before we move forward. They were chosen by God, ordained to be the ones sent to defend the gospel. So what were they like? How can we imitate them? The commentator Hendrickson describes Paul like this. Paul was a man of boundless energy, steadfast determination, earnest devotion to his Lord, zeal for the work of winning souls, and a resolute unwillingness that the great cause of the evangelization of the Gentiles be hindered in any way. He was not only an intellectual giant, but also deeply emotional and expertly tactful. This man cared about the faith. He cared about the truth of God's word. He cared about obeying his Lord, and he was willing to do whatever he had to do to defend it. We look at Barnabas, and Acts records a lot of how we can know who Barnabas is and his character. In Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, we see that Barnabas is a generous and caring man. And it says that in chapter 30, uh, verse 36 of chapter 4 of Acts says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. That's how we often think of this man. And it's true. And he owned a tract of land, and he sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. If you remember, the church in Judea and Jerusalem had grown by leaps and bounds, right? By thousands of congregants in a very short period of time. These folks maybe were part of Jerusalem, part of that initial population, or maybe in a lot of cases they came there, heard the gospel, and just stayed. Left their lives behind and stayed. This is where the church is. This is where the gospel is, where I got saved. I'm standing right here. The apostles are here. I'm staying. And we see in Acts chapter 6 that there was a need for people to serve and make sure that everybody had food and everybody had what they needed. And we saw that the church was responding and we see that Barnabas was a part of that where he sold a piece of his land and said, hey, this is for the church. He cared about the church. In Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 28, we see that he's also, he's also loving beyond fear. This is that passage where Paul has made it to Jerusalem and no one wants to talk to Paul because they're afraid because he's Saul still at that period of time and he was not too long ago killing them. So understandably, you might be a little bit concerned, but what does Barnabas do? In verse 27 of Acts chapter 9, he loves beyond fear. It says, but Barnabas took hold of Saul and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. That's a brother in Christ that says, regardless of reputation of where you've been before, you come with me, let's go, right? Let's serve the Lord together. That's really, I, I love Barnabas. He's also a dependable discipler. In Acts chapter 11, he's so dependable, verses 22 to 24, this is when the Jerusalem church gets wind that the Syrian Antioch church is growing. There are Christians there, there are Gentile Christians there, and they get word of that. So they want to send someone to go, let's go and see what's going on there. Who do they send? Barnabas. He's that dependable. And it says in verse 23, it says, Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. In verse 25, he doesn't stop there. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch and for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. 
And the last aspect of his character I would show, share with you is, is the last two verses. I don't know if it's the last two. Verse 29 and 30 of Acts chapter 11. He's trustworthy. He's a big-hearted man. Look what he did. In the proportion that the Antioch church had, that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did. Send it in charge of who? Barnabas and Saul to the elders. This is a man who loved the church. This is a man who loved the Lord. This is a man who gave his life to serve. He's worth imitating. And then we have Titus, the third gentleman that was brought onto that journey. And it says Paul proactively brought him. Why? Why would Titus be proactively brought on this journey? Remember, the Judaizers had come to Antioch and they said, you have to add circumcision in the law of Moses to salvation. This is before Galatia. This is right then, Acts chapter 11. They were doing that. And so Paul and Barnabas uh, think we have to go defend this in Jerusalem. We have to go there and make sure that we're on the same page with the Jerusalem church. Something odd is happening. And he brings Titus. Titus is 100% Greek. He's not Jewish. He's the exact representation of this idea of, hey, are you truly saved just by the gospel? Just by the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone? Because Titus is right there saying, yes, I am. Look, here's my life. This is what's happened to me. And he's going into the heart of Jerusalem, and he's a perfect test case. So Paul brings him along. He's not just a test case, lest Titus be offended. In Titus chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, we see his character is worth it too. Paul wrote to Titus in the letter there. He says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Why? For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If he was left there on his own to appoint elders in all of the churches in Crete as, God, as Paul had directed him, he is a man of great character that we can look up to and imitate. Which brings us to our first point of application from living what we're learning in the character of these men. It's convicting. We see the way they defend and apply the truth of God's word. We see how they live their lives and how they give of themselves and they are completely and 100% devoted to the gospel. I encourage us all this morning to examine ourselves against their faith that's worth to be imitated and look and say, where could I grow more? Where could I be more devoted? Where could I be more earnest? to grow more into Christ's image, to grow more into love of his word, to grow more into love of his gospel and to eagerly, eagerly defend it and apply it. I love those men. They're a great example. If we keep going in verse, uh, in verse chapter one, we'll see that where did he go? He went up to Jerusalem. We talked about this, the, it's the uh, Jerusalem council. And then if you wanna put Acts chapter 15 in, on one thumb place and then Galatians chapter two in the other, we're gonna bounce back and forth. Look at those cute people. <laughs> We're going to look back and forth between those two places. Uh, in Acts chapter 15, 1 to 2, we see the reason why he's going up. This is Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 2. Why is Paul going up? It says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others, there's Titus, of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. This was this, the, the time that the Judaizers hit Galatia was not the first time that Paul's encountering these folks. He encountered them in his home church, his sending church, the Antioch church in Syria. And he encountered them there first. And they came there, we learn in verse 24 of Acts chapter 15, that they were claiming some type of authority from a Jerusalem church. 
That's the big issue. They're coming from the Jerusalem church and they're claiming, hey, I came from this home place where Christianity is flowing out from. And so you should listen to what I'm saying. When I attack Paul and his character, you should listen. When I attack the gospel and what you've been told, you should listen because, hey, I came from the big church. In some degree, they're saying that. And so Paul is writing to the Galatians saying, I know these people, the people that are disturbing and distorting the truth to you, I know them, I've fought them. Be affirmed in your gospel. And we're going to see here in just a minute how he confirms that the gospel he taught the Galatians is the exact same gospel coming out of the Jerusalem church. And what a breath of fresh air that will be. And so Anak sends him along with that group up. We see in, the, in verse chapter 1 it was a revelation that prompted him to go. Uh, we don't know the details of that revelation. There are quite a few times in Paul's ministry where God through the Holy Spirit said, go here, don't go here, do this, do that. And so that's one of those, this is one of those times. And he affirmed that he should go up to Jerusalem for this because it was by revelation from God that he had done it. And we know that God revealed that to him. And when he gets there, in verse 2, it continues and it says, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. And when you think about that word submit, in our current day, submit sounds like maybe an application. Like, hey, do you guys approve of what I've been doing? And that is not at all the case. It's better translated declared. I declared to them the gospel that I've been preaching among the Gentiles. It has outright results that you cannot dispute. I declared to them the truth of this. Remember, where did Paul get his gospel? Straight from the Lord Jesus Christ. Straight from there. There's no disputing this. He would not have gone in there going, are you guys okay that I'm teaching it this way? That is not the way Paul would have done that. Why? Because he received it from the Lord himself. The Galatians know that. And he's affirming to them that, hey, this is exactly what I did. I went to the Jerusalem church and I declared to them the gospel that I've been preaching to you, to the Gentiles. And he's thoughtful. He says, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation and so this idea of private, and we read Acts chapter 15, you see that it wasn't just in a private meeting. It actually went to the whole church. And then also the apostles and the elders got together and reviewed what should we do about this. This is that private meeting, and it's wise. You're going in there. I'm not certain, Paul's saying, if we're on the same page about the gospel, because you sent, maybe, maybe you sent people to Antioch that are causing some trouble. And so we're, I'm going to meet with the leadership first privately to say, are we on the same page? And that's what he's doing in private. He says, are we on the same page? And those who were of reputation were there. And this is the first of four times Paul, in ten verses, that Paul's going to call these people those of reputation, those of reputation, the pillars of the church. And he does that on purpose. This is Paul. I mean, so this is John and James and Peter or Cephas as Paul refers to him. And he does this on purpose because the Judaizers were coming to the Galatians saying, hey, we're from the big church. You should listen to us. And he said, I met with the very people that you consider pillars. And that's important that he calls that out. And we know that in the letter that came from the Jerusalem council to the leaders of the, um, the Gentile world in Acts chapter 15 verse 24 is where they, James himself writes this and he says, Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. James is in full admission that we didn't send these people. These aren't from us. And so when Paul goes in private and declares his gospel in private to them, that he's been preaching among the Gentiles, it's met with confirmation. And we'll see that here in just a minute. But he says an interesting thing. He says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. And remember, context. Is Paul afraid of the Jerusalem church? The answer to that is no. We see that he received his gospel and his apostleship directly from Jesus Christ. And if you go just a little bit further in Galatians chapter 2, when Peter's there and Peter pulls back from the Gentiles, does Paul go, oh, well, that's just a bummer. No, he directly gets into Peter's face and calls him out. 
Paul's not afraid of these men. So the word fear is not really, the way we think about fear is like he's afraid of something. It's more better translated, I'm concerned that my ministry is going to be hindered. And what would be the biggest hindrance to Paul's ministry? Is when he gets to Jerusalem and he realizes that whatever's happened since I left here, they've adopted a false gospel. And now my gospel versus the home church's gospel is in conflict. That would be the worst. That would have completely, not completely, it would have greatly hindered the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ for a time. And so that's what he's concerned about. That's why he says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. He says, more like, I'm concerned that I might be running in vain because you might be compromised. But we see that that's not the truth because he gives that gospel and then we have the ultimate confirmation that takes place. And you look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Remember, the whole issue is they're saying, you need to add circumcision to your salvation. You need to obey the law of Moses and say you were saved through Christ. That's the whole thing. And. And Titus is there. He's in the heart of Jerusalem. Just imagine you're in a room and you're Titus. You are saved by the gospel and you know that with all confidence. But you know that there's this big possible dissension and you have people in that body that are standing up. You look at Acts chapter 15, you're going to see in verse 5 that there's this sect of the Pharisees that literally stands up and says, no, we need to add circumcision and the law of Moses to their salvation. They say that in that moment. And you have everybody looking at you. If there was ever a time for someone to feel compelled to do something because of the pressure of the moment, it was that one. It was that one. But what happens? Titus doesn't feel compelled to be circumcised. But not only that, it's even better. The church in Jerusalem didn't feel the need to compel Titus to be, to be circumcised. How do we know? In Acts chapter 15, both Peter and James stand up and agree with Paul's gospel. This is verses 6 to 11 for Peter's statement. This is what he says. It says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said this, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by what? Faith. Faith alone through Christ alone. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we are saved for the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are? You want to know what the Jerusalem church thought about the gospel that Paul's been preaching to the Gentiles? It says, that is the exact same gospel that we have. And Peter just testified to that. But it doesn't stop there. James, if you keep going in Acts chapter 15, verses 13 to 19, picks up the baton and also confirms the gospel. He says, after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree. He's going back to their home territory. The Old Testament is going to explain the exact same purpose from there. With this, the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and what? And all the Gentiles who are called by my name are gonna be a part of that church. It's God's plan from the beginning that the Gentiles would come in to the fold through his gospel. And James reminds them of that. 
And in verse 19, he says, therefore, it is my judgment, this is James, this is therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. What a confirmation that we are on the same page. You're going into that meeting not knowing, I don't know how this is going to go. I know these men somewhat. He spent, Paul spent 15 days with Peter once 15 years ago. I don't know how this is going to go. What a breath of fresh air to realize we are on the same exact page. The gospel that I preached to the Gentiles was just confirmed by the leaders of the Jerusalem church. So that wraps up our first affirmation. It's confirmed. We are on the same page. And we go to our second affirmation of the gospel, which is the true gospel was and is and will be threatened. It's going to happen. And we need to be ready. This is verses 4 and 5. And here we get the reason for why is all this happening. It says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield and subjected to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. These false brethren were secretly brought in to attack the gospel. It's the idea that wherever God's doing his work through his people and it's flourishing, there's going to be an attack. So who are these false brethren in the, in the Greek, it's more pseudo-brethren, or some have said sham Christians. We have two clues. One of them is from Acts 15, verse 5, and it says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So there's some in the Jerusalem church from the sect of the Pharisees as their background that are wrestling with this idea. It reads innocently that, they, no, I think this is what needs to happen. And they're distorting the truth because they're wrestling with they're the Pharisees, the people that were zealous for the law the most. Like, we've got to follow these rules. And they're wrestling with that. And they're standing up and they're trying to apply that to them. But we also know from the language that Paul uses of sneaked in and to spy out, that's not someone that's going, I have an innocent level of confusion about this. Could someone help? That is not what those people do. Someone that says, I'm sneaking in to spy out your liberty with the purpose later in verse 4 to, in, to bring you back to bondage, that's an enemy. That is enemy language. That is enemy combatant action. That is someone on purpose trying to hinder the gospel. So we know it's, it's definitely two people, two sets of people, and I, that's all we have clues to. But what are they trying to spy out? They're trying to spy out our liberty. And I want to put ourselves in the same seat of the Galatians and think, what is this liberty that Paul is so ardently defending? And I want us to be encouraged by it this morning too. And so I'm going to pull most of these definitions of liberty from Galatians chapter 5, but I'm also going to steal from other writings of Paul and then one from James. But I want us to think, what is my freedom in Christ? So we know, what is it that we're defending so ardently? Galatians chapter 5, 1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. That's strong language. You are not under a yoke of slavery anymore to the law of sin. You are not under that. You are free. Galatians 5.13 starts, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now you're free to not fall prey to the desires of the flesh that have plagued you for so many years or whatever the amount of, when they got saved. You're free from that. Galatians 5.18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're not under that same law of sin, that idea that where God looks at you and says, hey, if you don't keep the entire law perfectly, if you are not a perfect human being from day zero to day now, you're guilty. You're not under that law anymore. Galatians 5, to 25 
tells us what's the result of this freedom. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Is that not a life that screams freedom from the law? Isn't that a life that you, we, this is what Christians were built as they're saved through Jesus Christ alone to do. This is what we're defending. In Romans chapter 6, 22, Paul writes to the church there, he says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, just right there we could camp out and praise the Lord for a long time. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, being made more right with Christ and the outcome, eternal life. That's the liberty and the freedom that we're defending. And then James 1.25 says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. We have freedom from sin. We have freedom from any other system of law. We have eternal life. We have the ability to be sanctified and be made more like our, son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have the ability to live a blessed life, one that God is pleased with, not because of our works, but because he sees that God saved you. He sees complete righteousness and he sees you working out the gifts that he's given you, a blessed life. That is what we're defending. That is what's at stake. That is what's so important. Do not be brought into bondage again. We can praise the Lord for that. The purpose that they had there in verse four is to, to enslave, is that word bondage, to bring them back under for their own debt, for their own motivation. Some of them were because they feared the party of circumcisions. We see that later in Galatians. Some because they want to attack this new church that is changing their entire fabric of their life and the society around them. And they're like, no, no, this can't happen. I like the old way, and they're going to attack it. Either way, they wanted to bring them back into bondage. But in verse five, we see, and this is why Paul writes this, because this is what he wants the Galatians to know and hear and feel. What happened? But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. This attack on the gospel was thwarted. It was stopped. He stood firm. He stood in the gap along with Barnabas and Titus and the Jerusalem leaders of that church. And when the result, it says the gospel would, be, would remain with you. And that word remain isn't like stay. It's more concrete than that. It's the gospel is permanent with you. The gospel that I taught you, the gospel from Jesus Christ alone is permanent. It's not changed. You have no concerns, Galatians. Be comforted, Galatians. Don't hinder yourselves. So we look at what Paul did in verses 4 and 5, and we see this as another point of application for us. And it's know the truth. Know the truth so well in God's word that you see error when it comes up. Know the truth of God's word so well that you see error when it comes up. Because Paul stood in that gap with vigilance, with energy, with, with, with eagerness. And it's, it's our opportunity to stand in that gap today. And that's part of our prayer from this, just this morning is can we prove to be just as steadfast as Paul is. And that brings us to the wrap up our second affirmation, which is there's going to be enemies that attack and go to our third affirmation, which is the pillars of Christianity are unified over the gospel. This is verses six to 10. It says, but from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, 
seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as, important phrasing, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, parenthetically in verse 8, for he, Christ, who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Remember, you're the Galatian church fighting distortion of the gospel and you receive this section of the letter. Put yourself in that spot. Put yourself in that spot. Paul starts with the second and the third references to those of high reputation. Right? The, the, these important people that are being claimed by the folks that are coming to you bringing a different distorted truth. I'm with them. I'm with them. And he says, hey, it's, of who they are, it's not important to me. God doesn't show partiality, but it's important to you and it's really important to these Judaizers because they keep claiming they've got some type of authority. But that's not important. What's important is what does God's word say? And God's word is clear. That they did not contribute anything to the gospel. That word contribute to is they didn't add any requirements to the gospel. The whole purpose of this conversation was people are telling you to add to the gospel that I taught you. I'm going to Jerusalem church and we're going to have this discussion. And what is it? They added nothing to the gospel. That's like a high five moment. Jump up in your seats and cheer. This is important. No one added anything to the gospel. The leaders of the Jerusalem church did not add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ that I preached to you. No requirements, nothing. But it doesn't stop there. The good news continues. The good news continues in verses 7 and 8. It says not only did they not add anything, but on the contrary... They claimed equality. Remember, Paul's character has been attacked by these Judaizers. He's not a real apostle. His gospel's wrong. He's not from the Jerusalem church. He came out of Damascus and who knows. This is not one of us. He's being attacked. So what, it, what, what happens in verses 7 and 8? It says, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter. The leaders of the Jerusalem church, James, John, and Peter, are saying, hey, we see that you have the exact same gospel entrusted to you that Peter was entrusted with. We already read about what Peter said about that, right, this morning in Acts chapter 15. It's the exact same gospel. So their gospels are equal. But it doesn't stop there either. Verse 8, it says, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship. Okay, that's Christ working in Peter effectually for his apostleship. What happens? Also worked for me. Now you have the same apostleship and you have the same authority behind their apostleship. It's not just, hey, the gospel, what I taught you is right. Okay, good. No, it's the gospel I taught you is right. And then they affirm that we are equal in our authority, in our mission, in our purpose, in our message. It couldn't be any better. Those that were attacking Paul's gospel and authority are completely corrected. All the wind is out of their sails. They're done. There's no foundation to their attacks. That's terrific. But it even doesn't stop there. In verse 9 and 10 it says, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, fourth reference, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. This grace that had been entrusted, this grace that had been given to Paul, the pillars of the Jerusalem church recognized. 
How do they recognize it? It's the exact same gospel that they were saved by. It's the exact same gospel that they are preaching as they go out in their ministries. And what's the result of this whole conversation? They gave them the right hand of fellowship. This is the tried and true method of saying we agree. It's sealed treaties between countries. It's sealed agreements between kings. And now it is sealing Paul's gospel and his mission and his purpose with the Jerusalem church's gospel and mission and purpose. We are the same. They extended that right hand of fellowship. We agree. We have the same purpose. We have the same gospel. This idea of go to the uncircumcised and go to the circumcised, we see that language. We know the problem is about the circumcision. These are only references to who is the audience of your ministry. Paul's going to the Gentiles. James, Peter, they're now going to the Jews. But only one thing is asked to remember. So this is that <gasps> moment. Like, oh, you said nothing was added. This is that moment. Like, is it going to go bad? Are you going to twist it? Is it going to go wrong? But look what they say. Verse 10. They only asked us to remember the poor. The very thing that I was also eager to do. So even the one thing that's asked between these two pillars. Right? Paul to the Gentiles. James, John, Peter to the Jews. The only thing that's asked of them is, hey, remember the poor. Remember the poor, the very same thing I was also eager to do. Again, put yourself back in the seats of the Galatians. Put yourself there. You're concerned. People are coming to you saying, don't listen to Paul. His character's not right. His gospel's not right. He doesn't have the Jerusalem church behind him. We're from there. Don't listen to Paul. But then you get this letter. That's awesome. That's God taking care of his people. That's God making sure that error is confronted. Um, it's wonderful. They, they would, I, we're not told how they responded when they read this in the churches in that region. I can only imagine the, the hope and the praising of the Lord that took place as they saw that there was nothing found into all of that. And they're going back to freedom. They're going back to freedom. Now there's a big, there's a big application point for us. Right? And if we know the truth so well, which is what God's intent for us is, then we wouldn't be needing a letter from Paul to the Galatians to say, hey, don't be distorted by, the, by these false brethren. Don't be impacted by them. Necessarily wouldn't need it. Um, but knowing that we are sinful humans, we can also know that, yeah, that probably could have impacted us just like as it did them. Right? So look out for error. Look for that. Look to your heart. Like, where do I study? Where do I go? How important is that to me? Is it 15 minutes a day? I'm not going to ask you for your practice. Like, hey, what's your Bible study practice? I'm not going to ask you for that. I want you to be thinking about it. Because the whole issue is they weren't confirmed when someone with pseudo authority, they claimed authority from somewhere else came and said, hey, don't listen to that. They got totally wrapped around the axle. We need not be wrapped around the axle. We have God's word taught to us. We can know the answers. He's given it to us in our hands. And that's really the major application that comes out of it. But let me summarize where we've been. We've looked at three affirmations of the gospel for the Galatians. And it's for the Galatians and it's for us when we are weak. Number one, we saw that Paul's gospel that he taught to them and to the Gentiles is confirmed as the same and true with the Jerusalem church. The second affirmation was that there will always be threats to the gospel as it works. Stand firm. Stand firm. Be in that gap. Let's imitate Paul and Barnabas Titus that way. And then the third affirmation was that Paul and the church leaders 
were 100% unified in the whole of the gospel and the whole of their mission and the whole of their purpose and the whole of how they understood scripture and the whole of the authority coming from Christ who effectually worked through them. There was no variation at all, none whatsoever. So I want you to, I want you to, these are on the bottom of your page too, but I want to invite you to remember three things. I want you to imitate the steadfastness of Paul and Barnabas and Titus. When I say I, I mean me too. I want us to do that. Secondly, I want us to know and pursue and defend the truth. Personally, as it's ours, just like we were ordained to go defend the truth through the Jerusalem Council, to know it and care about it that much. And then lastly, be alert for error and let us never yield. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, your word is powerful. As we've looked at this section of the letter from, written by Paul, inspired by you completely without error to the Galatians, we can see the power of your word. We can see how the power of this message of complete unity of the gospel would have landed on the hearts of the Galatians that were struggling. And how it would have landed on the hearts of the Galatians that weren't struggling, that were trying to stand firm there. How it would have brought clarity of purpose, clarity of what you have for us, and most importantly, clarity of how we are saved. Lord, Lord, let us never lose the gospel. It is not a one-time event in our lives. It is the backbone, foundation, energy, and continual source of fuel for us, for us to live before you in a right way. Not trying to earn your favor in any way. Christ has done that. But Lord, living before you because we love you so much for the love that you demonstrated toward us while we were yet sinners, your word says. Lord, let us live and care about your word and care about your purposes and walk in an imitator of you and an imitator of Paul and Barnabas and Titus and these giants of the faith that we read about in a way that our lives would be blessed because we're doing what you have for us to do, Lord, and the way that people around us would be impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way that this body of believers in North Lake would grow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.